Please be seated. I invite you to the book of Acts, chapter 21. We'll be looking at the last portion of the book of Acts 21, chapter 21. As we all know, we live in a divided world. The human race is splintered into a complex series of segregated units. There are language barriers which divide us. We talked about those last week, didn't we? We are set apart by our ethnic and cultural uniquenesses as well as by national and geographic boundaries. Further dividing the human race are influences ranging from competing political interests all the way to war and ethnic cleansing. Many in our world desire that this would all stop. They want peaceful cooperation for all peoples. And they work saying, can we not get along? Let's find a way of peace. We're thankful for those efforts. But we also realize that they find very little agreement along the way on how to secure such cooperation. And they find even less success. Perhaps a case in point, President Obama received the Nobel Peace Prize this past week for this, and I quote, extraordinary efforts to strengthen international diplomacy and cooperation between peoples. Now, I mean utterly no disrespect, and I hope someday that that proves true of him, but this man received this award not even been one year in office. I don't think it says much about him at all, but what I think it says, it speaks to the degree of wishful thinking in this world. It's what we want to believe. And it also indicates how thin is the list of heroes. Not individuals who have shaken this world over many, many years of faithful service, but an individual who's only been in place for less than a year. If we went in the opposite direction, we'd find many people lined up that we could award for having contributed to war and racism, and party politics, and religious intolerance, and cultural alienation. There are many who are laboring to break down the peace between peoples and to erect the walls of division wherever they are found on any level. Indeed, most of those who see themselves as peace seekers contribute to certain of these divisions themselves. We believe as we come to the Scriptures and understand the revelation of God to us in the Word that there is only one way that this divided world can truly be united in peace, and that is for the root cause of alienation to be dealt with. The root cause of alienation must be healed for any such peace, and that alienation is the alienation from God. We gather today rejoicing. We gather today singing as our series through Acts has reminded us again and again because God is actively reconciling sinners to Himself in this world and thus creating a lasting peace between alienated peoples. This peace with others flows from that more fundamental peace with God which is realized when a sinner places saving trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, to reconcile us to God. And when that reconciliation takes place, 
We walk in peace with God, and the natural result is that we want to walk in peace with others. This is not a wishful dream. This is a work that God Himself is doing in this world. The problem is that God's reconciling agenda hinges on the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ, which is an agenda that sinners separated from God naturally resist, sometimes violently. But when you consider it, the only way for true reconciliation and true peace to reign It is for there to be one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. Apart from that, there will never be peace. But there is tremendous resistance to such an agenda. Violent offense to the thought that Jesus Christ is Lord and King. And that brings us here to Acts chapter 21. We left the narrative two weeks ago at a rather indelicate place, didn't we? Paul was actually suspended in space. There were soldiers that were holding him up, keeping him from a crowd of people who wanted to rip him limb from limb. Remember, Paul was worshiping at the temple in Jerusalem. He has come on a reconciling mission. Jews and Gentiles are not in agreement. There is great animosity between, and he comes on this mission. Even within the church, Jews and Gentiles were facing great difficulties. And the whole concept of the Gentile mission was a concept of great division in the church. Paul comes to strengthen the church. He comes to say that I am a Jew, and that the inclusion of the Gentiles is actually God's agenda. But as he seeks to press that point, there are those who resist. In fact, all he was really doing was simply worshiping in the temple at Jerusalem, worshiping the true and living God. You remember that Paul was accused of bringing a Gentile, Trophimus, past the low wall of the Soreg, behind which no Gentile was permitted to walk. They were not permitted to cross. On this model of the temple area, remember that Paul, as a Jewish man, would have been able to go through these gates, or in through these gates here, into this inner area, this inner courtyard that surrounded the temple proper. But there were those who recognized who he was. Here was that one, that that one who was witnessing Christ as our Messiah. They run him out of the temple area through these gates. The gates are shut behind him to mitigate the defilement, they believe. But there was this low wall, this soreg. And no Gentile was permitted to cross past this wall. But the claim was that Paul had brought Trophimus past the wall into the temple area somewhere, defiling the whole temple. Across this great pavement, the court of the Gentiles, where Gentiles were permitted... Off to this northwest corner over here was the Antonia, the fortress. And Roman soldiers came down through a a grand stone staircase out of this Antonia into this court of the Gentiles. You see just the edge of the soreg, that low wall right here in the corner. And they tried to determine what was the problem with Paul. They take him into captivity to protect him from the crowds. And they're seeking to discern what has brought all this upheaval. We left them last time entering underneath through this portico. There is a stairway leading into the Antonian. Paul is right there uh, with the soldiers being protected and being led into the barracks. 
chapter 21 and verse 36. As they are leading him in, the mob of people followed, crying out, Away with him! Kill him! Destroy this man! Because he has defiled our temple. Again, we see the walls of separation that are so prominent. And these people move to this zeal and passion for their religious perspective, desiring to kill this man. We pick up the account at verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, this is the commander there of the Antonia, a ruler of a thousand soldiers, a man that, uh, just figuratively, if, if not literally, but a man with great power. He says to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then? who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. Claudius Lysias is the tribune's name, and he assumed that Paul was an Aramaic-speaking Jew, apparently. So he's surprised when Paul, in rather polite Greek, asks if he may speak. And he reasons then, the, the commander, that uh, this must be the Egyptian who is among the assassins. The assassins was a group of the most fanatical Jewish nationalists and bitter opponents of Rome. They were infamous for their tactic of killing pro-Roman Jews. And what they would do is they would mix in at these great festivals where there were crowds of people and they would have a knife under their robe and they would uh, knife to death some pro-Roman Jew, and and then moved through the crowd and escaped detection. They were known for this, and they were called then the assassins. Well, there was an Egyptian assassin who had showed up not long ago. In fact, the Roman historian Josephus reports this event. This man was Egyptian. He led a large band of followers out into the desert. And many false prophets would do this and they would stir them up and tell them all the great things that they were going to do. As he led them out into the desert, he explained to them what his purpose was. They were going to go to the Mount of Olives, overlooking Jerusalem. And he was going to speak the word and the walls of Jerusalem were going to crumble at the sound of his voice. And when those walls crumbled, these 4,000 were to run into the city and to destroy the Roman troops. I'm not really sure which one's more fanatical, the idea that the walls would crumble at his voice or that 4,000 could destroy the Roman troops in, in, in Jerusalem. But this is what he said. Well, Felix, the Roman governor, got wind of this and decided to do some crushing of his own. He sent out his troops. 400 of these 4,000 were killed. 200 were captured and the rest fled. The Egyptian leader never heard from again. This is the history behind this. And as this commander looks at Paul, he says, oh, you must be that Egyptian guy. You've shown up again. Is that who you are? Paul hustles to make the truth known. And he says in verse 39, I am a Jew, not an Egyptian. From Tarsus in Cilicia, not from Jerusalem here. I am a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. Tarsus is no obscure city. It was a common way to speak of a prominent city. Tarsus was a political and economic center with a proud reputation for its vibrant intellectual life. 
And in an honor-based culture such as this, the place of one's birth would indicate one's status. I think the commander is probably relieved that Paul was not the Egyptian assassin. He's probably relieved as well that he's not a troublesome Jerusalemite. And he permits Paul to speak. He maybe wants to hear what Paul will say to these people who are so angry with him and then get to the bottom of the problem. Verse 40, And when he had given him permission then, Paul standing on the steps, you have the scene in your mind, standing on the steps of the Antonia, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. The Hebrew language here in this context is the dialect of Hebrew dialect that would be Aramaic. The context to follow indicates that the tribune may not have understood Aramaic. He certainly gains nothing from Paul's speech. But Paul was able to gain the keen attention of the crowd who was probably quite curious to learn the truth about him. It's interesting here, he never really talks about Trophimus and defiling the temple. And apparently the reason is, is he knows that's not the issue and they know that's not the issue. They're angered by his teaching of Jesus Christ and angered by the concept that Gentiles could come into saving relationship with God apart from joining the Israelite nation. If you are truly loyal to the God that you claim to worship, Paul will say in the speech, you will join me in obedience to Jesus as Messiah. Indeed, everything that Paul has done in reaching the Gentiles, as well as in proclaiming Christ Messiah, everything that he has done has been in obedience to the God of Israel. And this is what he will seek to explain to them. It is his first speech of five defenses in these last chapters of Acts. As we work our way through these next weeks, it will tend to sound a little bit alike. There's a reason for that. Luke is bringing this document to a climax, saying, here is the truth about the Christian faith. This is the second of three accounts of the conversion of Saul in Acts. The first coming in chapter 9, as Luke narrates the account. Remember, producing a scroll, this book was produced on a scroll, very expensive. You don't waste ink. Three Different accounts of Paul's conversion says that we are to take very careful note of this transformation. So Paul, at that point, begins to tell about his life as a Jew. And he is explaining to the people that I am indeed a Jew. Listen to this. Listen to what I have to say. Verse 3, I am a Jew. Born in Tarsus in Cilicia. He didn't tell the tribune this, but now he throws this in for their sake, but brought up in this city. That immediately gains the respect of his audience. He grew up here in Jerusalem where it's hard and where the real Jews live. And I was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. If he didn't have their attention before that, he definitely had it now. According to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. Born in Tarsus, raised in Jerusalem, a disciple of Gamaliel. 
Gamaliel was the most revered teacher of the law in Jerusalem in the first century. For Paul to be invited to be this man's disciple meant that Paul was one sharp kid. He was at the upper levels of intellectual capacity. He was a young man. They were pouring immense attention into him, and he was at the heart of Jerusalem. At the feet of Gamaliel, a Pharisee, a man who lived in strict devotion to the law and even the Pharisaical interpretation of the law, which was often overwrought. Paul said, I aced every test. I sat there at his feet and I got it all. And listening to Gamaliel teach about the God of Israel who called Abraham who called our people and gave us the law at Mount Sinai, I became a man zealous for the law of God. You know our identity hinges on Abraham. And you know that our identity hinges on the law given at Mount Sinai. I was a young man learning that law here in this city at the feet of Gamaliel. Verse 4, And I persecuted this way. What way? The Christian faith. I persecuted it to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were, with, who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. What's he saying? That was my zeal for the law of God. One thing I knew is that this Christian faith, this concept of Jesus as the Messiah of Israel, could not be true because the law says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. I knew Jesus of Nazareth was cursed of God, and so I prosecuted this way. No one in the crowd could miss the fact that Paul moved among the highest levels of influence in Jerusalem and that he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees who were highly respected for their devotion. But as such a man, he received a vision from heaven. Verse 6, As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? These things don't happen every day, but they can happen. And they happen to me, says Paul here. Chapter 9, this history was narrated by Luke. And Luke intends, I think, for this scene to be profoundly impressed then upon his readers. It is a vital occasion. As the risen Christ appears to Saul. More on that in a moment, but note verse 8. And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. Notice that Jesus of Nazareth, who was executed in Jerusalem, appears to Paul in risen form. That is to say, Jesus is alive. Combining this account with Luke's in chapter 9, we read that those who traveled with Paul saw the light, but they did not see Jesus. 
They heard the sound, but they did not understand what Jesus was saying. In other words, this is a unique revelation to Saul. They shared the experience, but they did not receive the revelation of the risen Christ. It's a matter played out in many churches today. In a different sense of the term, but in a very parallel way, there's a sense of the experience of who Jesus is, but not a connection with the true revelation of Christ. That is these individuals. They couldn't miss that something had happened, but it is to Paul that this truth is revealed. Verse 10, And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, the appearance was at noon, yet the light was so bright, what light? The light of God, paralleling the Shekinah glory, the brilliant presence of God in the Old Testament, this light from heaven shines, and I was led then by the hand by those who were with me, and I came into Damascus. Paul's experience on the road to Damascus was now confirmed by another devout Jew. There were some who knew something was happening that were with him, but now he appeals to a very legitimate witness, Ananias. Verse 12, And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I receive my sight and saw him. What do we have here? We have this blinding light, and we have then a healing of Paul's eyes. Divine confirmation of Paul's calling and mission. This blinding was not a judgment by God, but indicated that Paul saw the glory of God, and the healing is an indication that God was with him and had commissioned him to this task. Verse 14 and 15 give us the importance of this vision. He said, the God of our fathers, this is Ananias confirming now to Paul, that God of our fathers appointed you to know His will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from His mouth. For you will be a witness to everyone of what you have seen and heard. So, he is to know God's will, certainly including the fact that he would now be an apostle to the Gentiles, that he would suffer for Jesus as he took the message. Number two, it has been appointed to you to see the righteous one. Who's the righteous one? That is a messianic title, to see Jesus Christ. It is here that Paul sees the risen Savior and thus joins the apostles, number three, to hear his voice from his mouth. That is to receive revelation of the truth that Paul is to proclaim to the nations. Remember the Jews received the law of God on Mount Sinai. These Jews who are here listening to Paul's speech would have had a firm sense of that. We have received the revelation of God from Mount Sinai. Well, here is Paul in a very similar sense receiving a commission from God. Verse 16, And now, says Ananias, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on His name. Paul does not stress that the baptism here is in the name of Jesus. 
although that is obvious. But what he does stress is that he, think of it, as a devout Jew, as a disciple of Gamaliel, as a zealous enforcer of the faith as he understands it, needs to be forgiven. He needs the forgiveness of God. And so says Ananias, seek that forgiveness in Christ, be baptized and wash away your sins. Now many have taken this verse to say that Ananias is saying that by washing away the dirt of the body, you will be washing away your sins. In other words, salvation comes by the act of baptism. The Christian faith is certainly organically related to the faith of Israel. There is no question on that, but immersion itself is not the means of salvation. Immersion would not wash away Paul's sins as if salvation were achieved by works. The New Testament denies this over and again. But the point is that the regeneration of the soul and the baptism of the body were not carefully distinguished in that day and in that time. Jews got baptized for numerous reasons of devotion and dedication. When you came to trust Christ as Savior, it would have been just seen as something that you would then do is identify in the waters of baptism with Christ. We live in a very different situation. Because of the confusion of infant baptism, we have worked to really distinguish conversion and baptism, and there's a necessity for that. We think, in fact, that we're best serving the cause of Christ to do that because of the the many in our culture who believe that baptism does save in some sense. But in this situation, when you trusted Christ as Savior, you knew that baptism was the physical symbol of that trust and of that faith. And so baptism is the outward proclamation of the inner washing from sin experienced by one who trusts Christ as Savior. And anyone who has come to place conscious, saving faith in Christ is called in the New Testament documents to stand in the waters of baptism and to express that faith as a follower of Christ. That's what Ananias calls Paul to do. Now at this point in the speech, we learn something new about Paul's history. It's amazing what he reveals here. He says, verse 17 speaks of his vision in Jerusalem. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. It's a reference to three years after his conversion near Damascus when Paul returned to Jerusalem. The length of time between the two is given in Galatians chapter 1. But there in Jerusalem, now notice it. Think of how these people take this. He's in the temple. He's in the temple their temple, where the God of Israel is worshipped. And in that place, verse 18, I saw Him, Jesus, saying, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about Me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in You. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. I honestly don't know what Paul means there, but I wonder if he doesn't mean, I've got some work to do here. I've got some things to set straight. They believe I'm against you, Jesus. I need to let them know I'm for you. What does Jesus say? 
Verse 21, go, for I will send you away to the Gentiles. The appearance of Jesus near Damascus then is confirmed by this vision in the temple at Jerusalem. God has truly placed his call upon Saul of Tarsus. Paul's mission to the Gentiles was a God-given mission. He was simply obeying the voice of God. Notice again that the vision takes place in the temple. This puts Paul in the role of a prophet and links Paul's calling with the God of Israel. And notice again that Jesus lives. It's not the memory of Christ that leads Paul to this place. It is the risen Jesus who conveys this calling. The risen Christ indeed is orchestrating this mission as the exalted Messiah. And this mission takes off from the temple in Jerusalem. Very significant point. So as Moses was called to deliver the Jews from Egypt, so Paul is called to bring a message of rescue to the Gentiles. God has called him to it. Gentiles. Well, to this point, Paul has skirted reference to them so as to build a foundation for this point. But Paul is going to the Gentiles because the risen Christ, who has cleansed Paul from sin, desires to cleanse Gentiles from their sins as well. But it is at this point, this point of reconciling power, that these people really resist. We see the response to his speech at verse 22. Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, By the way, I would be pretty sure Paul was about to turn to the Old Testament text and explain how the gospel was to go to the Gentiles prophetically. He didn't get there. They heard the word Gentiles, they raised their voices, and they throw a fit. Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, that's their response taking their outer garments off, throwing it in the air, grabbing dust, throwing it. I mean, they, they weren't polite people like we are. They let you know what they really thought. This was revolting. The thought that Gentiles would come to God apart from coming through the nation of Israel. If Jesus is the only Savior, and if Jesus' mission is to reconcile all kinds of people to God, across all kinds of human barriers, then Gentiles must be reached with the Gospel. Indeed, as the Old Testament prophetically stressed, God's saving purposes always included the Gentiles. Remember the call to Abram, in you shall all nations of the earth be blessed. All nations. Now really, precisely because they saw themselves as God's people, these Jews rejected the notion of God reaching Gentiles apart from incorporating them into Israel. The Jews had no problem with a Gentile becoming a Jew. They had a major problem. In fact, they felt it was blasphemous to God to see a Gentile come to God in reconciliation apart from becoming part of the covenant people. Well, God was doing something, and they weren't jumping on the wagon. God, in God's mind, as He has prophetically prepared, 
The walls of separation encouraging the Israelites' holiness to God would be toppled if Gentiles were made holy. And Gentiles could now be made holy through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus dying to pay the penalty of our sin and rising from the dead to defeat death, in that way, God was reconciling now not only Jews, but Gentiles to himself. Gentiles, too, could have their sins washed away through faith in Israel's Messiah. But that thought troubled these Jews. They desired the wall of separation to be maintained. They wanted their place. They liked it that they alone were God's people. They wanted to keep it that way. And they fling dust and fling garments as a sign of rejection of Paul's message. Indeed, it is a sign of rejection of Christ's message. Now stop here for a moment. This isn't made explicit in the text, but how can we miss this? Who is giving this speech? We have the old Saul of Tarsus, now the Apostle Paul, who's giving this speech. And we ask this question, how does Jesus deal with his enemies? How do the Jews treat their enemies? Well, let's just take the soldiers who are standing there right now, probably having a hard time hearing the Aramaic. Maybe some of them understand a little bit. But just take them. Here are these Gentiles, and the Jews around them are going crazy with the idea that these people could actually be reconciled to God. They want their enemies to remain their enemies. Here is Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, hitting the body of Christ with one blow after another, persecuting Jesus by persecuting His people. And how does Christ respond? Paul, I want you to join my family. I want you to experience the forgiveness of sin. The Jews were certainly oppressed by their Roman authorities on some level, but that pales in comparison to the way that Paul was attacking Christ. These people do not understand the grace of God. They don't understand the power of God's reconciling mercy. Believers should recognize that the gospel cuts across every human divide because of the reconciling power of the gospel of Christ. And if we do not see that that's what the gospel accomplishes, and we do not live with that reconciling orientation, it is because we're really not understanding this gospel. Paul stands there as a trophy of the grace of God, as an enemy whom Jesus loved. And anyone who has received that forgiveness and love should love others and use and see the gospel breaking down every barrier and every wall. Now this one's easy for us. This is sort of a softball, but consider it. There are churches in this country, there are believers that sit in those churches who are blind to this truth in very dramatic ways. In May of 2000, the president of Southeastern Seminary, Paige Patterson, was being interviewed by Mark Dever and sat and, and reported, this is hard to believe, but he reported that virtually every month 
There are graduates of Southeastern Seminary working in the Deep South who are fired because they seek to proclaim the gospel to blacks. These are Christians who have a Bible, who come to church, who see themselves as followers of Jesus Christ and are utterly clueless about the reconciling power of God. And that may be a matter of great revulsion to us here in the North, but how hypocritical might each one of us be if we do not labor to reach across cultural and social divides, to reach people with the power of the Gospel. For us, the divide may be nothing more than wealth. That person is too wealthy for me to approach. That person is below me economically. Culturally speaking, that person's out of my league. Culturally speaking, on the other side, that person's, well, I'm out of their league. Now, we may not articulate those thoughts. We may not think that way consciously. It may not be a matter of outright rebellion against God, but I wonder how many times we allow the natural walls of division all around us to discourage us from proclaiming the gospel of Christ. I would say we need to go in entirely the other direction. We need to see those who are culturally, ethnically distinct from whoever we are. We need to see those people who are on the other side of such walls and to let the Gospel of Christ loose because it does conquer all such walls. There's a reconciling power of the Gospel and may we proclaim it faithfully and freely and proclaim it to people, in fact, because they are distinct from us. Because we are moved by the love of God who reaches out to enemies, who reaches out to those who are different, who reaches out to reconcile all in the one body of Christ, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Watch the power of the Gospel work. A number of us heard recently a missionary of Korean descent who is laboring now in Japan. I don't have time to spell out the history there, but that's exactly it. The Japanese oppressors of the Koreans. And here's an individual that goes willingly to that culture where the divide is radical and deeply personal and takes the gospel of Christ and proclaims it that the walls may come tumbling down. The Egyptian who thought he could bring the walls down with his voice in Jerusalem was an idiot. But those who believe that the gospel of Christ crumbles walls are Jesus' people. In a figurative sense, that's exactly what the gospel does over and over again. What is true at this place is that Jesus still stands accused by the crowd. How do the Roman authorities respond? We'll move quickly through this, but verse 24, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. Flogging was the use of a scourge, a wooden handle. Off of the handle came thongs, that is, leather strips, several of them, and then 
that strip would be put through some larger chunks of bone, or at the end would be attached pieces of metal, and this uh, scourge would be brought down against the back and the legs of the victim. It was a torturous process. Rome really didn't care about how people felt, they just wanted the truth. And many who suffered this torture would be crippled for life. Indeed, virtually everyone who went through this would show the scars and the effects of this scourging for the rest of their life. And many, many died in the process. But that was Rome's way. And let me tell you, it sent the message to people. Keep your nose out of trouble. Well, Paul had clearly not done that, and so they were going to scourge him to figure out what he had done wrong, to loosen his lips, to tell the truth. But when they had stretched him out, verse 25, for the whips, they either had tied him down or were using the whips. In any event, they're getting him ready for the flogging. Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. You cannot examine a Roman citizen by flogging. It's illegal. You could become a Roman citizen by birth, by high governmental or social status, by an act of unique service to the empire, or by bribery. But however you got it, if you were a Roman citizen, you could not be flogged by way of examination. You can possibly be flogged afterward if you were being punished for a crime where you are condemned, but not before, not to just loosen your tongue and get to the truth. That informs verse 28. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. The commander paid a sizable bribe to gain Roman citizenship and seems to imply that Paul could not be as honorable as he was, or maybe he wants to know how much money Paul has. Maybe there's another way around this little situation. Paul trumps him, and I don't think he saw this coming. He trumps him and says, I was born a citizen. That puts the commander in a most precarious position. Remember, an honor-based culture He is a Roman citizen through bribery. Paul was born a citizen, and he has just done something illegal. So verse 29, those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Not assuming this, Claudius Lysias had bound Paul in an illegal manner, and from this point on, we'll secure Paul's safety by the grace of God. Well, again, through this latter section of the book of Acts, we're going to see repeating themes. But one again is that Luke's agenda is to present Christianity not a threat to the social order, but rather as a reconciling force among people. We have no intention of unseating authorities, and to this very day that same message is proclaimed throughout Christendom. We have a calling from God to be submissive to the ruling authorities. We are not striving to take over. 
We believe it is the state's responsibility to create an environment of law and order, and we respect that law and order. In fact, we may indeed participate in its securing. We are to render willingly to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and that has been the universal Christian message since the days of Jesus. But at the same time, here comes the tension again. At the same time, we believe there is only one Lord, and that through reconciliation to Him, any disparate peoples are and can be united to Him. Paul actively served the purposes of Jesus who rejoices to reconcile divided peoples through the Gospel as He reconciles them first to God and as He brings them to know that Jesus Christ is Lord. And when you think about it, logically speaking, that's the only way there will be peace on earth is for there to be one absolute ruler. Well, that's who Christ is. And some are embracing Him as that Lord, and they're being drawn together to one another. The walls are tumbling down. The greatest wall is the division between the sinner and God. But where that division is answered in the death and resurrection of Christ, people are brought together as the family of God. One day a Russian-speaking man came into my office. I'm sure I've told the story before, but we were separated culturally. More significantly, we were completely separated linguistically. He might have understood a few things I was saying. I don't think so, but I didn't understand anything that he was saying. My Russian is terrible. It's non-existent. But I, I wasn't sure then why he came in to see me but I, he did bring a Bible. And I gestured to him. It took a little bit of time to get the Bible out of his hands, and no, I wasn't taking it from him, but I just asked if I could look at his Bible, and I took his Russian Bible. I did the best that I could, and it took me some time, but I was pretty sure I figured out where the book of John was, just figuring out the, the writing. And I put my finger on John 3 and verse 16. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. And as I pointed at that verse, a smile broke across His face. There was a joy in His eyes. And we, with our hand motions and our faces, were saying to one another, we are brothers in Jesus Christ never understood a word we were saying. Imagine that coming day, Christian, when people across every human wall of division in this splintered world will rally around the Lord Jesus Christ who will rule the earth in righteousness. That day is coming. Is that day in your heart does it well up with joy to consider that day when all will be reconciled to Christ? Some separated from Him for eternity, certainly, but those who have come to embrace Him, knowing that He is Lord, and knowing that we are one in Christ as the family of God. May we gather on that day with people that we've reached, not because they were just like us, but in fact because they were not just like us. And on that day... The brilliant splendor of Jesus will outshine the sun once again. 
and will continue to shine in our hearts through all eternity because we have been reconciled to God. The God who did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. I ask you this morning, have you been reconciled to God? You are a sinner. If you do not believe that, you're as delusional as the Egyptian that thought he could break down walls with his voice. We have violated the law of God. Have you been reconciled to the God from whom you are separated in your sin? Have you followed Jesus in baptism? If not, come to Him today. Be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And then for those of us who have known that experience, have come to know the forgiveness of sin, may we look forward to that day when in eternity the song that will be sung is worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we rejoice again in the message, the theme of Your reconciling power and grace to us in Christ. I pray that You would move us, that You would strengthen us, that You would transform us by Your grace, that we would faithfully serve You and that you would permit this church to see, to experience, to continue to experience the walls that are broken down, the divisions that are ended as people come to faith in Jesus Christ. May we arise as your church, and may we carry this reconciling message to sinners separated from you, our God and Savior, and to people separated from one another because of sin and self-centeredness. I pray, Father, that the gospel would continue to conquer hearts and that you would permit it to conquer the heart of anyone separated from you that is in this assembly or in the hearing of, of my voice. We pray, God, that you will continue to hold out the gospel in your mercy and allow sinners to be reconciled to God. For those of us who have experienced this reconciliation, we pray, dear Father, that we might arise and carry this message of hope and salvation to a needy world. Through Christ we pray. Amen.